Hey, my name is Chuck. I have a new life in Christ. I'm in recovery for lust, codependency control, and this week not trusting God's plan as I should. Good to be with you guys tonight. And so tonight we are continuing in our series on emotions. And I kind of wanted to introduce the topic for tonight by giving you a glimpse of sort of my life story. I will tell people that when they ask about my life's journey, it basically has had three different movements. The first movement was a ministry movement for about 17 years. Most of that spent in student ministry. But because of an inappropriate sexual relationship with a student, that movement of my life appropriately ended and a second movement began. That movement included a 10-year prison sentence in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And it was there that a lot, of, a lot of my attention, a lot of my focus was on the guilt of my crime. And I was guilty of my crime. But I became so focused on my guilt, that guilt turned to shame. But it was during the course of that movement of my life that I met this Jesus who loved me in spite of my incredible sin, and he paid the price that I should have paid, and he reminded me daily that for freedom, he had set me free. So I needed to stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. The last movement of my life has been spent in recovery ministry, ministry inside the prisons, and ministry to men and women who were exiting the prison and returning to Dallas-Fort Worth, and that's through a, a nonprofit called Grace Place Properties. Now, here's what's interesting. Very few people have known me through all seasons of my life. There are, there are a selected few, and I'd like to at least show you the picture of one of those. I think we have this picture. Please don't judge me for the terrible mustache and the blonde hair. This is my friend Rob Thomas. Rob was in the eighth grade when that picture was made. I probably was 27 or 28 years old. Rob was a part of my student ministry here in Dallas. He was a student at Lake Highlands High School or junior high at the time. And so he knew me in my best moments, but he also knew me in some of my worst moments. And after my sin became public and my incarceration became something that was real, it was Rob that kept in contact with me through that entire 10 years. When I was released from prison, Rob showed up at my parents' house with a Starbucks vanilla bean frappuccino. The reason I remember that is I had never heard of Starbucks, seen Starbucks, or had a Starbucks. It had become a thing during the 10 years that I was locked up. Rob also brought a computer, laptop, and a printer because he knew I needed some help with my reentry in that moment. And so I want to show you a more recent picture of Rob and I. That was taken in November, right outside of Texadelphia, up 75 in Richardson. He and I had lunch together. Rob has been a constant reminder of God's grace. God's mercy and God's goodness. That God could and did forgive someone who had walked away from him and left him in the way that I had. 
and that God can bring about interesting things in our life, things of redemption that are there. And so I would sit there and say constant companions are important, but I've had another one who's been a constant companion, and I wouldn't call this one faithful or friendly, but he's certainly been present. This companion has been both debilitating and harmful, and he has a name. His name is shame. So I'd like to define that term for you. Shame is the painful emotion that is caused by a consciousness of guilt, failure, or impropriety that often results in a paralyzing conviction or belief that one is worthless, of no value to others and to God, and that they are altogether deserving of disdain and rejection. And I just want to say to you, man, I've lived there. And he still shows up. Today, I was in a funeral up the road here in Richardson. And there were people that were going to be there that knew my past and, and, and had experienced much of the same thing that Rob had experienced with me. Yet some of those people had not nearly been as kind as Rob had been. And I thought about, man, I don't need to be here. I don't need to come here. That constant companion whispering in my ear in moments like that that were difficult. Yet, here's what I know. I know what the truth is. I know that I have a new life in Christ, and the old is gone, and behold, the new has come. Yet at the same time, when the harsh realities of life show up, I will go back, and that constant companion can whisper things in my ear that if I'm not constantly preaching the gospel to myself, I will start to believe. See, I have to be reminded that is not me. And you know what? I'm not the only one that has to be reminded of that because what I'm guessing is there are some in this room that has that constant friend who's not a friend. And he sits there and he speaks those lies into your ear hoping that you will move away from what the gospel says you are in Christ. And it happened in Scripture there's a woman that Jesus encounters in Samaria in John chapter 4. Her life's an absolute wreck. And after five failed marriages, she stops going to the, to the well that's in town in the morning time when you would draw water. She goes to a well outside of town where there are no interfering eyes and there are no voices or whispers or condemning looks that are there. In 2 Samuel 11, you read the story of King David, a powerful man who abused and went to, abused his power and slept with another man's wife and got her pregnant. And out of fear of exposing his wickedness, he tried to cover up, and the cover up turned murderous. In Luke chapter 8, you find the story of a woman who suffered from a vaginal hemorrhage for 12 years. All of that time, she is ceremoniously unclean, which means she can't go to worship in the temple, nor can anyone else be around her. So she is unclean, uncomfortable, and uncomforted. And she had seen Jesus reach out and touch others, and she prayed for a touch from him. But how could she ask him for that in front of a whole crowd? And so she sought to hide in anonymity by just touching the fringe of his robe. 
three biblical portraits of people who tried to hide their shame in the wrong place. But the wonderful thing is all experienced God's power to break shame, hold over them, and to set them free. And here's what I would remind you of tonight. What is true of them is true of us as well. So what gives shame its power? I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3. It is the story of the fall where Adam and Eve are tempted and they succumb to that temptation. Look at what happens beginning in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who ate with her. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from among the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Their first instinct is our first instinct when shame gets control. It is the instinct to hide from one another and from God, and no wonder. They now stood guilty before God. They are vulnerable to each other and Satan in a whole new horrible way. Suddenly, they are sinful, weak, damaged people living in an incredibly dangerous world, wide open to the condemning accusations of the evil one. But since the very beginning, God has had this plan to defeat the shame-fueled scheme of the enemy. I want you to hear these words from Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But listen to these words. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel." Yet because sin is alive in our bodies and because we are beset with weakness, the kind of shame we often experience is this potent combination of both failure and pride. And because we are full of sinful pride, we become ashamed of our failures, our weaknesses, and we will go to almost any length to hide those things from others and we think we can hide it from God. Like the woman at the well, King David and the hemorrhaging woman, our shame frequently encourages us to hide in the wrong places. We hide in our homes or away from our homes. We hide in our rooms or hide in our offices. We hide in housework, yard work, and garage puttering. We hide behind computers and phones and newspapers and magazines. We hide behind earphones, Netflix, and ESPN. Sometimes we'll hide in church. We'll hide in busyness and procrastination. We hide in outright lies or diversionary conversation. We hide in sullenness and humor. We hide behind bravado and timidity. We hide behind extroversion and introversion because, you see, we all have our noontime well visits too. Our sin cover-ups our anonymous touches because pride moves us to use whatever we can 
to hide from our shame. And shame will tell us, hide your pornography. Hide your substance abuse. Hide your body image issues. When we struggle in these and countless other areas, we may be guilty of the behavior, but it's shame that keeps us stuck where we don't come out of those moments. So what do you do about it? How do you handle it? See, I think the key to breaking the power of pride-fueled shame is the superior power of humility-fueled faith in the work of Christ and in the promises of Christ. Shame pronounces us guilty and deficient. Jesus pronounces us guiltless and promises that his grace will be sufficient for all of us in our weak moments that are there. And here's what I know. In a room like this, you'll hear somebody say those words and here's what you'll go. Yeah, that's true for them. But that can't be true for me. But I want you to see how these stories resolve. Look at the woman at the well. She listened to Jesus, believed in him, and her sin-wrecked life was redeemed, her shame destroyed. Look at what happened to King David. He confessed his sin, repented, trust the pre-incarnate Christ and his guilt and shame, which was grace, which is great, was imputed to Christ and it was paid for in full. And it's what happened to the hemorrhaging woman. Oh, Jesus did make her tell the crowd about her shame. And in doing so, she received the healing and cleansing that she needed because Jesus made her shame a showcase of God's grace. And here's what I'd remind us of tonight. Jesus offers the same power to you, just like he offers that same power to me. And I have to tell you, it is necessary for me in my life to have faithful companions like Rob, who will sit there and remind me about God's truth in my life and how God's grace is sufficient for everything that I have gone through and everything that I will go through because that evil one uses shame as a way to keep showing up and I have to preach the gospel to myself. And that's what's happened in the life of a young man who's a friend of mine and whose story we get to hear tonight. Would you welcome my friend, Chris O'Neill.